Hello, I'm Cormac. You're listening to Queerly Beloved, supported by Amazon Music. In this series, I invite DJs and musicians, friends and allies from the LGBTQ plus community to talk about music, queerness and anything else that shapes their unique story. It is my hope that in sharing our individual experiences, we can learn and grow and focus on our similarities rather than our differences. You can find all of the music mentioned in today's episode and each episode at the link in the episode description. Today, I am chatting with FKA M4A. We have played a series of back-to-back DJ sets this summer, which were hugely enjoyable and we laughed a lot. They are a very warm character. They have a big place in my heart and I hope you get to learn something about them today. So I'm going to say a huge welcome to you, FKA M4A. Hi. Thank you for being a guest on Queerly Beloved. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm asking all of my guests to introduce themselves. So maybe you could say who you are and how you identify. I am FKA M4A, DJ, artist extraordinaire <laughs> from London, living in Berlin. I use they, them pronouns. I identify as queer. Yeah, I've been living in Berlin for it's coming up five years now since I made that transition. We do love a transition in life. We do. And that's kind of, yeah, what's brought me up to where I am now. And what a five years it has been for you. It's incredible. Yeah, it's been a great five years. It's been a lot of self-reflection, growth, professional growth, personal growth, realization, coming more into my skin as a person. It's a ever-evolving process and I'm really grateful to Berlin for giving me that chapter so far in my life. And you're giving to the city also as a result of that. But all of that is an incredible encapsulation of what we talk about on Queerly Beloved. Mm -hmm. So I'm particularly interested in the role of music and how it supports us on our queer journey Mm -hmm. in a predominantly heteronormative world. Mm -hmm. I reckon that music plays a particular role for us. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know where you grew up, the circumstances in which you grew up, your family. Was there music when, when mm-hmm. you were growing up? Do you remember hearing much music? I remember music all the time. I think there was never a moment where we didn't have music playing in the house other than when we were sleeping. Yeah, music was just constantly a thing. The earliest memory is Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was a huge part of my parents bonding their relationship they actually met at a michael jackson concert they went to michael jackson yeah they went to michael jackson's concerts together at wembley stadium which is exactly where i grew up i grew up in wembley in london so like music and culture and events like that was on my doorstep like i remember as a teenager or even maybe a bit younger i used to love to go and stand outside the stadium or by wembley arena when i knew like my favorite pop stars or favorite artists were there like partly hoping to get a glimpse of them, but also partly just wanting to like hear it. And you could hear it from where you lived? I could hear it from where I lived. Sometimes I would even walk down to the stadium because yeah, it was like 10 minutes away. And I remember, wow, having this memory now, saying it out loud, but I didn't remember it for many years. In the summer breaks, of course it's summer, I sit on my mom's balcony because I grew up on a council estate uh, at my mom's. I used to hear all of the concerts happening at Wembley Stadium. We lived about 10 minutes away from the stadium, but of course it's an open stadium, so the sound was traveling. And I heard everyone you can think of, I mean, Beyonce, 
the Spice Girls, uh, rock bands, like anyone. And I used to love sitting out there like into the evening listening to it. I just had that memory now for the first time in like so many years. Wow. <laughs> it fascinates me how much fantasy is involved in pop music, especially, and the role that that played for me when I was growing up. So I can only imagine what it would be like to hear live renditions of songs that, you know, kind of floating in over your balcony. That must be so incredible. Absolutely. And also that your parents met at a Michael Jackson gig. That's, that's cosmic. That's cosmic. I mean, music was such a strong point. It was such a thing in our house. Like, you know, it wasn't football. It wasn't games. It was music. You know, like my dad played the bass. Mm. My dad loved music. My mom just loved to listen. Like, you know, music was just like a love language, you know, you could say for us. Ah. I was exposed to it as young as I can remember. It's beautiful. Is there one record in particular that, it's a hard question, but that maybe summarizes your childhood or something that feels, you know, you call it a love language, which is so beautiful. But is there maybe a one track that encapsulates that? I'm going to give you two because I love you that much. Oh, thanks. <laughs> First one was Lady Marmalade, Woo! Christina Aguilera, Lil' Kim, Maya, Pink, Missy Elliott. That's the first one I have memory. Like we had it on CD <laughs> and I used to like, I wouldn't take a bath without the CD player, like at the edge of the door, just barely at the edge of the door. Cause you know, we don't want a fire or anything in the bathroom. <laughs> but like, I always used to have the CD player and it would have to play on loop. My mom would have to like come and start the song again, like as it finished. And like, I was just obsessed, like the chorus, the kitschy kitschy yeah, yeah. Like, I like, I still remember it so clearly. Like, I loved it. Wow. And the second one was Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue. I mean, those are two seminal pop tracks. Yes. I mean, that's like, I think Kylie was like 2002, 2003. I think also Lady Marmalade was around the same time. So it kind of makes sense with my, uh, the age I was at the time. I think I was maybe four or five years old. Yeah. I have a theory about Can't Get You Out of My Head as being perhaps the most... You have a theory. I have a theory about it. I'm a geek for some things. And I think it's not my favorite pop song. It's a great, amazing pop song. My theory is that it might, in fact, be the best pop song ever. Oh, wow. In an, in an objective way. Simply because, like, it has some elements that I really love in pop music, in that mm. it has quite dark lyrics, but mm. in a quite happy tune mm -hmm. you know it's, it mm -hmm. could it could be the anthem of a stalker yeah and then also the chorus you can sing the chorus in any regardless of whatever language you speak yeah so it's got this massive universal appeal to it it crosses so many boundaries and then the third thing is that it's written by kathy dennis who i love oh wow <laughs> okay i didn't know that yeah she wrote it she also wrote toxic and i kissed a girl okay. she had some good hits in the 90s as well but it didn't take off so massively for her but wow what a great start and what a queer start i mean pop music like it was the divas for me it was the girls yeah it was always the girls it was always the elaborate costumes i mean kylie with the fucking the white outfit with the hoods like in the music video that outfit went on to be so iconic you know it was replicated so many times at halloween and television skits the lady marmalade with the burlesque with the moulin rouge like yeah that filled my little homosexual queer heart with so much joy at the time and so much brightness and it was my gateway into into music yeah it makes me feel 
free mm. when I think of that. And also the choreography. The choreography of Can't Get You Out of My Head was groundbreaking. Absolutely. No, I mean, those were two huge cultural moments in music and yes. in, in queerness. I mean, they're both queer anthems. And it's kind of something I miss about today because mm. I feel like the iconicness of queer anthems, of music, of artists, I feel like we don't get the same level of iconicness from like pop music today. Mm. If you'll agree, if you won't agree, but I feel like those days of Kylie and Britney and Madonna, like I feel like we don't get those like really stand out huge queer anthems so much anymore. Everything kind of just feels a bit middle of the way to me now. It's a good point. I wonder if that's down to algorithms and saleability mm. as opposed to maybe people taking chances and trying something different. Mm. I mean, Born This Way was definitely one of the most major queer anthems. Absolutely. That Beyonce record recently. Yes, for the queer community. Absolutely. And, and also Break My Soul. I think that had a massive queer undertone to it. Absolutely. In terms of lyrics. I think last year I heard that played at so many pride parties. It was, it's, 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 it's a moment. So, I mean, at that early age, it sounds like your parents were quite embracing and encouraging. Was there a time when you realized or came to think of your otherness or in how you didn't fit in? You know, like my otherness is just something that I was always so familiar with. At least if we're talking on the terms of like sexuality, like sexuality for me, it was never, there was never a question about it. Like I always knew previously identifying as a gay male, that I was a male, attracted to men. I knew that from the youngest age. Like, it's never something I questioned. It's never something that bothered me. I, of course, wasn't, like, vocal about it or really open about it until I was about 16. But it wasn't until maybe 15, between 17, that's when I started to discover discomfort with gender identity and fluidity and not being sure where I fit on the spectrum, mm. who I am as a person. Like, I know at 15 to 16... That's a big question to ask yourself because that's when you're just starting to get that mental awareness, that very early mental awareness of who you are. So I think me like not having the sexuality hurdle, which everyone kind of around me did because I was, you know, like a pop music super fan. So all my friends were also queer pop music super fans and they were all like talking about their struggles with sexual identity and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm fine. So I guess all is good. But then it wasn't until the gender kind of stuff yeah. came into my head and I was like, okay, here is my struggle. <laughs> <laughs> and is there a record that reminds you of that time? I'm going to say Spice Girls, Headlines, Friendship Never Ends, because it's like when they just came back on their reunion. I think it was 2007 that song came out. It was like my first introduction to the Spice Girls. I was, of course, too young when they had their first time around. So when they came back for their reunion, that's when I really fell in love. And my dad took me to the show. Oh, wow. The first concert I ever went to. And I just became obsessed, became absolutely obsessed. I would like watch their videos all summer long at home, like the tour videos I would watch like for hours and hours. I'd study the dance routines, the costumes. And that just, yeah, once again, <laughs> filled my little queer heart with joy. That must have been a great like retrospective to jump into. Because I was there, obviously, when the Spice Girls first came around. So I'm just thinking of what it would be like to travel backwards into their back catalogue, because there was a period in terms of chart success where they were just like hit, 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 hit. I mean, they smashed it. It was crazy. Absolutely. I listened to something recently, an interview with Mel C. Mm -hmm. She seems like a beautiful person to listen to and, and a great queer advocate. Absolutely. She had a lot to say about learning how to be a better ally. And she'd been doing some tours with Sink the Pink in London and 
And she said that that was really such a a learning curve for her. And mm-hmm. she was talking about what it is to be an ally. And she was talking about, you know, the situation in Dubai and the World Cup. And I didn't really pay attention to the Spice Girls individually before, but I thought, oh, she sounds like a really lovely person. She's great. She's always had, I think, a great energy, a very, very reflective, non-greedy kind of energy about her. I've always always liked her vibe. I can agree with you. And she experienced quite a lot of body shaming and a lot of homophobia also, because Mm -hmm. there was a period when, I don't know if it was when they split up or when she just tried to do a solo thing, but there was a period where, uh, you know, she was no longer Sporty Spice. She had put on weight, Mm. she cut her hair. And I mean, the amount of homophobia in the newspapers towards her was just insane. You know, kind of the slur that they were throwing at her and Mm -hmm. also around her body weight. And uh, she put up with a lot of shit. Because I know she'd spoken about in one of the Spice Girl documentary, like when they came back, that she had a lot, a big history with um, eating disorders, Mm. anorexia and bulimia and, you know, a lot of that came from that treatment in the media. Yeah. But she's a she's an icon. She's a queen. When did you get knowledgeable or interested or exposed to club music or dance music? You know, <laughs> my closest understanding of club music was Monday night at Heaven at Popcorn, where you had, you know, the trashiest dance edits of pop music. I've been there. Maybe we were, were in the room at the same time. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> at least once. I know you've been living in Berlin for a long time. No, like, that was my introduction to dance music. Let's say that. Which I just saw as pop music at the time. I had no idea what I was listening to, but I was just going with it, you know? But it wasn't until I came to Berlin for the first time. In summer 2017, July specifically. And I met a guy here on Grinder and was super into him. And we went for a date and he said, do you want to go to Buttons? And I said, what's Buttons? And he's like, it's a party. And I was like, okay, let's go. And we went to Buttons in about blank in the garden. And I tried ecstasy for the first time. I tried drugs for the first time. And, you know, previously to that, I was very anti-drugs. I was like, I'm never going to do this. You really liked him. I really liked him. I really, really <laughs> liked him. And I said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this together. And it was, yeah, my first ecstasy experience with a boy that I was so into. You already know where this story is going. <laughs> and um, I, yeah, I heard house music for the first time. I heard disco for the first time. I heard techno for the first time. And of course, I was probably a lot more excited about it because I was on ecstasy. But it was like, I was like, wow, what is this? Like this, I'm so in love with the, the story mm. of the music and the performance aspect and the fact that people are really listening. It's not like where I come from in London where everyone is just dancing and not paying attention. It's like a performance. It's like a, mm. a story. People are building a flow. And then the next day, I went to Berghain. We did a, a two-night bender, of course. I went to Berghain, and I saw Honey in the garden, uh, Honey Dijon. Um, I saw her for the first time, didn't know who she was, and I just completely fell in love and was so amazed, and I was, like, completely head blown. So I started following her and paying attention to her journey and listening to her sets and studying what she said about music mm. and the journey and the story and... It just was like, it was a mind-blowing moment for me. It's so interesting because very often DJs move here 
for that reason, they move here, mm. you know, to try and DJ more or to be around clubs more. What brought you to Berlin? Uh, what brought me to Berlin? Brexit. It's a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit was one reason. This boy, partly, was another reason. Oh, wow. He was good. He was, uh, he was something. Let's say that. You were digmatized. I was digmatized.com. I came to Berlin this summer. I fell in love with the city, the culture. I met beautiful people from all over Europe who lived here, whereas all I knew back home was stale British people. And I was just amazed. I was so in love. And I said, okay, I'm going to move here. The idea of electronic music wasn't necessarily in my head so much. At that time, I was performing a lot back then. I was a drag performer previously. Mm. That was like kind of my, my thing at that time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to come to Berlin. I'm not sure what I'm going to do here. I know I'm going to continue doing my drag. I'm going to start DJing a bit more because I was doing pop DJing at the time. But I'm going to just see how it works and I'm going to see what it offers me. Is there a track that would remind you of that time? Maybe Buttons or Listening to Honey that time around that period? Absolutely. I remember, I think it was Sean J. Wright that was playing in the Buttons Garden. Sean was playing No Worries by Butch. Oh, it's a big track. And you know, it just has that, you know, that hook where no one knows what she's saying. <laughs> but everybody gets it. <laughs> but everyone gets it. Do you know what she's saying? No, but I think that's a perfect hook when you can create a hook that People don't know what it, you're saying, but it's a hook. They get it. That's it's uh, a hook. It's catchy. But I remember, like, I, I can still feel it and still hear it so clearly. I remember being on the dance floor, at the back of the dance floor, and I could hear this hook, and it just was stuck in my head. Was, I, and I didn't hear it again for, like, another year, uh-huh. you know, because I, I, I didn't know what even house music was called at that time. I didn't know how to Google it. I didn't know how to look, look for it. Then, like, once I started digging into house music and electronic stuff, you know, a year or so later, I heard it again. And I was like, oh my God, that's the track. Amazing. <laughs> that's the hook. Like, you know, and I just, I remember that moment so clearly. And what a wonderland to kind of delve into. Like mm-hmm. when you don't have the vocabulary or the experience of music to that point, And then you're kind of thrown into it. That's so yeah. amazing. It's an absolute down the rabbit hole. <laughs> You've done all right going down that rabbit hole, babes. It's uh, the rabbit hole is <laughs> continuing to serve me. So you were doing drag, DJing in drag. And then was that kind of a gradual, easy transition into, I mean, how has that developed? It wasn't an easy transition because, you know, my reputation as a DJ was uh, Schwartz, uh, GMF, Heaven in London. Like I was playing between London, Amsterdam and Berlin on most weekends Mm. and I was playing in pop clubs. So when I started to toy with the idea of doing electronic stuff, I had no idea where to start. So I started playing like, you know, really heavy like Detroit techno with like house music and maybe some disco like it was all like a big mess but I had no idea what I was doing you know I didn't know a fucking thing about beat matching I was just trying to make it work so I told the promoters of these different parties mostly here in Berlin I said I want to play on the like electronic floor because I would always play on the pop floor and I I still love pop music I haven't DJed pop music in you know since before the pandemic but that was my staple so I said to these promoters, I want to play electronic music. And of course, you know, I'd be playing to four people, five people, even at peak, even at peak time, because, you know, that's not really the highlight in, in clubs like Schwartz. Mm. And unless it's like a specific party like that, you know, people mostly go for pop music. They go to dance to those big euphoric queer anthems. Um, so that was kind of the beginning. And I was doing it with drag at that time. Mm-hmm. Then I slowly started stripping the drag back. 
and maybe just like showing up to a gig in like a winged eyeliner, you know, <laughs> kind of like slowly changing it. And there was definitely some resistance. Some promoters would be like, oh, well, you know, we thought you'd be in drag or we booked you for drag. And I'm like, yeah, like, I understand. But like, I'm kind of like separating that. Like, I want to perform, you know, my drag as this and I want to DJ as this. Mm-hmm. And most mostly it was accepted and welcomed. And then that, that brought me up to 2018, 2019. I started working with Pansy, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Pansy gave me a booking at Melt Festival in 2019. And it was like the first time I got to actually play like a full, you know, electronic set. And I kind of did it in like drag makeup, but kind of like non-drag clothing. Like it was a gender fucky kind of fun thing. And I had a great time. I played disco. I played house. I kind of had a very nice beginning understanding of what the music meant to me. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the pandemic hit after that. You know, I spent the rest of that year doing those kind of underground queer clubs here in Berlin. And then we went, Psh. So you mentioned you were playing Detroit and mixing it with pop and house music. Is there one particular record that you could say, okay, that was that's such a Polaroid snapshot of those early sets? Absolutely. Um, there is a Chicago house track. Do You Feel Me by NY's Finest. Okay. I haven't played it in such a long time. I might revisit it soon because it's been three plus more years since I've played that track, I will say. But it really reminds me of the very, very early time because it was just me like starting to get an understanding of what I like or what I want to play. Like I previously said, I didn't know what any of this music was called. I didn't know what Italo was. Mm. Like I knew I liked this kind of synthy sound and like I was like, okay, I really, I really like this, but I don't know how to Google it. I don't know how to find it on Spotify. Mm. I'm going to add another one in there into the mix just because again, I love you. Angel Eyes by Lime. Oh, amazing. The dub mix. Uh-huh. That was the very first time that I had been able to like hear an Italo track. And I was like, okay, I love this. I want to play this. Where do I find more of this? Uh-huh. And I, 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 I couldn't really find much because I didn't know what I was looking for. I still didn't know it was called Italo. But those two, Do You Feel Me and uh, Angel Eyes, those are like the very early first glimpses into that time. Incredible. I mean, Lime are such a, an amazing way to jump into Italo also. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested, you know, in this life that we lead and this job that we do, our conversations and our focus is very often on celebration mm-hmm. and the joy of life. I feel very often that our jobs are jobs, but in other people's social lives. And I know from speaking for myself, that journey from it being a social life into a work life, I mean, it happened on some levels quite smoothly and then internally you know realizing that I wasn't the party I was just working at the party was a bit of a journey for me and I'm, I'm interested to talk to other queer people about how we stay sane in this world and I'm curious to know if you have any let's call them sanity practices you know those they're always changing but as time has gone on I think I've gotten a lot more refined with them my therapist has been a big help in that Having a therapist, for one, has just already been a huge step in staying sane <laughs> or yeah. maintaining maintaining stability whilst on tour. Because, yeah, like you said, our professions and work is built into other people's social time and it's their time when they're off. You know, yeah. we're working when our friends are partying and we're traveling all the time or we're, you know, in party to party to party. And, you know, it's a super fun job. It's a job that you and I, I can definitely speak for you, are both super grateful 
that we can call this our careers. Um, it doesn't mean it's always the most fun. It doesn't mean that it's always the most exciting. I like to keep that real because with mm-hmm. social media and online, I think there is this perception of always trying to show the best highlights of every moment and forgetting to talk about that some gigs are a struggle, some are not enjoyable, some moments are tough. And I, I think we don't speak about that enough as a as a DJ community or as an artist community. Mm-hmm. But sanity practices, my therapist, coming up to a year now with a therapist, I've cut out pretty much all alcohol. I've never touched drugs professionally. I've pretty much cut out all alcohol. And a new one for me lately has actually been cutting out sugar. Oh, I'm very interested to know about that. I had a few gigs where I was in like, I don't want to say disassociation, but just like not very present, not being able to connect with my music. I'm like, okay, what's going, what's going wrong here? I'm playing the music I love. There's a great crowd around me. Something is just unsettled. And I was talking about this with my therapist and they told me, what are you drinking? What are you, what are you having? You know, when you're mm. playing, it's like, oh, you know, like maybe I'm having a glass of champagne. Maybe I'm having a Mata or maybe I'm having a Coca-Cola. And they were like, this sugar is of course caffeine. This is going to heighten any anxiety or any tension that you already have within yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you do need to have a sugar boost, have some grapes, have an orange, yes. have something natural, have a natural sugar. And lately I've been playing pretty much thanks to you with just coconut water or regular water. Mm-hmm. And my ability to stay present and actually have energy has been a lot more than it ever has been previously. I find having a cold shower uh, when I come back from a gig oh. has been a big reset for me because I really struggle to fall asleep after gigs um, just because of the adrenaline. That's a great tip. I'm going to try that. Try it for, you know, as long as you can handle or if you want to like gradually ease your way into it. Because I was talking with, uh, I don't want to butcher his DJ name, Ketiov? Yes. Did I, did I say it right? It's lovely. I think so, so yes. He's lovely. Not butcher his DJ name, but you know, we were talking about this a few weeks ago. He was asking me like how I stay sane, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, cold shower. It does a wonder. I bring pajamas with me on tour. Like I love my pajamas. Yeah, I know. I know. Because when we were on tour together recently, you had your pajamas and it was the cutest thing <laughs> I've ever seen. I like to bring my pajamas. I like to have a piece of home with me. Uh-huh. And I like to have a book. That's really it, to be honest. Those are the things that really keep me very, very relaxed. You know, like anything that's going to upset my body or my mental state, I'm learning what those things are now as I get older. The things that can like little push me over the edge or like make me feel a bit uncomfortable. I'm learning to not like, you know, normalize having that glass of champagne or having that mm-hmm. that energy drink or that kind of stuff. You know, even if we've been traveling for two or three nights of touring, Mm. I'd rather just have a bottle of water. It's amazing. And th- there's some great tips in there. I'm going to try the cold shower. And I learned the sugar thing from years of of giving myself more anxiety behind the booth. Mm. I still do have a mate sometimes. I do like to have a little bit of, mm-hmm. that's kind of like me surfing the edge. So rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And then other things maybe like, I mean, we talked about it before between us, but Keeping my social interactions down is a big help for me on tour. Big one, yeah. Yeah, just kind of, I wouldn't say compartmentalizing, but like, you know, my social energy goes into my gig as opposed to like doing lots of things before. I just don't have so much to give. I give so much. I mean, we give so much when we play that it's too much to, to kind of expect it to be on tap for before as well. So learning to put boundaries around that has been a big part of my sanity practice also. And it's really important yeah. to do, to do those things, especially because, you know, your performance, your gig is, it's why you're there. Yes.
It's what you're there to do. It's why you're there. And it's great to have dinner. It's great to hang out and, you know, that kind of stuff before. But whatever you need to make yourself feel as relaxed and comfortable as possible before you go and do your performance, that's what needs to be figured out. Mm -hmm. Some people, they like to have all of that social energy around them. It gets them hyped. Yeah. But I think you and I, we think very similarly in this sense that we need that time to really gather our energies. Because like, like I said before, sometimes you're on tour for two or three days in a row. You're at night free. Your social batteries are almost out. Yes. But you know, you've still got to push through. It's still work. You've still got to go and do the best you can for yourself mm -hmm. and also for that crowd of people. In the tough times, is there music that you lean on or do you kind of go into silence or? I think I always lean into music at any given moment. Sometimes I think that's a positive thing. Sometimes I think it's a negative thing because I feel sometimes we can use music just to not be alone with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I find a lot of comfort and safety in music, but I also know that there are times where I don't want to be alone with my thoughts and feelings. So I'll just put music on. I see that as a double-edged sword. I see that as a great thing. But I also see that as a thing of avoiding issues at sometimes. And speaking of a, of a specific artist, Rojin Murphy, um, anything from her catalogue, really. But this album in particular, Rojin Machine, it's really kept me going at so many given moments, mm. especially during the pandemic when that album came out. The album came out in October 2020. And it keeps me going. It keeps me moving keeps my energies flowing in a personal, chill setting, you know. She's amazing. I mean, she is many things, but she is a soul singer. She is a soul singer. And her voice lends itself to so many different genres. And it's kind of ridiculous how cool she is. She's an artist, you know, and I, I don't mean to say that a lot of musicians are not artists. They mm. are, but she is a, when you listen to a body of work by someone like her, it is mm -hmm. a story through and through. It's unconventional, but somehow still works mm. to a mass appeal. Absolutely. She's got it, you know? Yeah, she's very she's very talented. And I love as well, you know, when she performs, she has that thing that Grace Jones has as well, where you could take everything off stage and she would entertain you. I mean, she uses exactly. props and things, but she doesn't need them also. We've seen her in Panorama Bar. Yeah. Where she just has a microphone. Yeah. And that's it. And she, and just this energy of people around her, you know, she can do it. Like you said, like with Grace, like, you know, these artists, they can do that. They don't need this mm. huge paraphernalia around them, even though it contributes and it helps with her artistic processes at times. Um, but, you know, if you strip all that back, she can just, she can do it. Do you know this live video thing that she did during the pandemic? It was breathtaking. That was incredible. It was, it, was, it was in like a warehouse, right? Yeah, I've watched that a few times and it's just like, all right, there's just her knocking about Ikea. <laughs> being cool as fuck. It's just insane. She's so good. Yes. She's so good. And then back to DJing, is there a record that you're playing at the moment that you're a bit obsessed with? Is there a record? I need, I need a second for this one. Um, it's like, it's, it's, it's a Polari plug. <laughs> <laughs> which is not intentional it's not planned it's just because that track is so fucking great and you know what I'm going to say oh wow yeah Disco Anthem uh, Louis de Tommaso is that how you say his name? yes yeah like like from the, the second that you played that track for the first time when we had our our Hua back to back yeah it's easily my favourite track of this whole year I've told you that privately as well but it's my easily so my favourite track of this whole year and like it's worked in every setting with every crowd 
any nation of people, and you know, because you <laughs> you play the fuck out of it too. It just it goes off. I do, yeah. Um, and it just fills you with such joy. It's such happiness. And I find, you know, because when I do my sets, I like to go through these waves of darkness and then into the light again and into a bit of mm. darkness. And I find that that track always comes at a place where I've just been in maybe like half an hour of kind of more darker, kind of more dystopian stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that just brings like an eruption of joy. Yeah, it's killer. It's absolutely killer. I'm sure, I'm sure Louis will be absolutely thrilled to listen to this as well. Yeah, when he sent me like some demos for the for the EP, I just I remember that and I was like, oh, okay, let's uh, let's definitely release that. It was, Did it sound like that at the time? Yeah, he's very he's very talented. He sent me a few things, and then it was really just about then kind of curating it within an EP, like getting like getting the other tracks that would kind of frame it somehow. And uh, mm. the other tracks in the EP are really great standalone tracks, also. Yes. But then when you have Disco Anthem on there, it's a bit like, it's like a bomb going off in the EP. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, it's, it's massive yeah. and it's it's the reaction to it across crowds and things has been super, super great to see. For me, that's my track of this summer. It's amazing to get to know you. It's also amazing to like hear your story and your trajectory and you're very wise. I mean, I learn things from you. I think we share lots of things together. We learn things from each other. Yeah, but it's it's really lovely. And I'm very much looking forward to summer with you as well. We're going to have a lot of fun. We've already been yes. having fun, but... We've already been having those fun. Those gigs with each other will be oasises of sorts. Oasai. Yes. Oasai. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being part of Queerly Beloved. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Queerly Beloved with me, Cormac. You can find the playlist of all the music featured in today's episode in the episode description. And while you're there, please do hit subscribe so you don't miss out on my conversations with other talented people. A big thank you to Michael Lane, my producer, my manager, Melissa Taylor at Tailored Communication, and of course, to Amazon Music for their support. Take care of yourself. All the best. Bye.